Anxiety and stress is a product of thinking about the future. Depression is always the product of thinking about the past. The problem is not stress itself or anxiety itself. The problem is not depression itself. The problem is how we're using the mind. Because if you stay in the present moment and we just take a breath and I'm looking at you and you're looking at me, this is all there is right here. Welcome everyone, I'm Sam Sebastian, and you're listening to How Are You Doing Really? In today's episode, I have the honor of speaking with my friend Joseph Metter. Just to give you a little information on Joseph, he received his formal education in the US and in Israel. He studied social sciences, biblical studies, and ordination. Master of Theology in Systematic Theology, eventually getting his PhD in Philosophy of Education. He also studied Jungian theory, Gestalt theory, and various forms of yoga and meditation. Joseph, in addition to all of that, is just one of the sweetest, um, most heartfelt beings that I've had the opportunity of interacting with and just really grateful for him and what he shares today in the episode. So I look forward to sharing this all with you. Welcome everyone. I am Sam Sebastian and today I'm joined by my friend Joseph Metter. Uh, and I met Joseph uh, a couple of years ago, uh, almost maybe three or four years ago in uh, Austin when uh, me and my partner Finn uh, were visiting. Him and uh, Joe have, have been friends and uh, Joe's been a mentor of Finn's uh, for a while and has really looked up to you and the brief interactions that we've had, I, I just was really um, touched and, and impacted by um, getting to just be in your presence and experience um, some of your your work um, at Garden of the Ancients. Um, yeah, so I wanted to, to have Joe on today just to hear a bit about his experience uh, these past five, six months or so, or just the year in general um, with everything that's been going on and uh, with the pandemic and, and with the civil and uh, social just, just, justice movements that are going on and um, anything else that, that kind of is on your heart and at the surface during this time. But I'll uh, let Joe say hi and share anything else he'd like to. <laughs> it's really good to be with you. And uh, uh, it's a very beautiful morning here. And uh, so it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Honored to be here today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for making the time and, um, being being a guest on the show 
I know that um, you have quite a busy schedule and um, yeah, I'm just, I really appreciate you, you making the time to do this today with me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, I wanted to maybe just start by by asking the question that I, I do with all of my guests. Um, how are you doing, uh, really? And and just tuning into any emotions or things that are present for you in this moment. Yeah, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the uh, I guess the non cliched form of of your inquiry. Because, you know, we're so, especially people from my generation, and I'm 62, uh, are so used to the cliche questions. And we have these very well-rehearsed cliche responses. But to actually get past, uh, you know, the armor that, that a lot of people have built up uh, is, is a really good thing. And so um, I'm doing very well and uh just i feel very blessed and uh very thankful uh to be here thank you yeah it's it's interesting the the kind of automatic responses that come from that 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 question sometimes or or just leaving it at how are you doing you know even when we were uh talking a little bit earlier I noticed myself just kind of give an automatic response and I, I took a moment to kind of feel into well, how was I really feeling in that moment um, when right. we had that exchange and I felt kind of just getting things ready and, and wanting to look look at a couple of things before we got online together and just noticing there was a little bit of... Um, anxiety in in me uh as as things approached <laughs> the start time um yeah you know i i really care a lot about this this work and and doing this podcast and yeah i want to i want to do a good job so i i think sometimes when i um kind of have have somebody on that i really admire and look up to it's it's it, it kind of brings up this uh, nervousness inside of me. And one thing that, that I notice right now is just like being with you and, and seeing you as I share this, my nervous system is actually kind of calming down a bit more. So it's, it's cool. Good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Well, like I said, this is my first podcast and um, in my own practice, um, self-practice, over the years, I've really tried to learn, and the key is remembering to do it in the moment, and that is just to let everything go. Because in, in a situation like this, and like I said, I've listened to your other podcasts, and uh, what strikes me is the genuineness, the gentleness but also the honesty that that you bring into it and that your guests bring. And uh, that really creates an environment that's that's been so rare, especially in our society, uh, just to be comfortable, to be yourself, and to say what's really on your heart. 
um, in an environment where that's really uh, all that all that you're asking for. And so there's no, uh, for me, there's no preparation. There's no study in this. It's just as we did just a moment ago, just quiet the mind, mm-hmm. and then just just open up because it's all there anyway. <laughs> and there are no goals. I mean, there's no there's no goal. It's just how are you doing really? And it really is such a matter of, of perception. Mm-hmm. The perception that we bring into every situation. Um, and I'm a recovering uh, type A plus personality. So it was <laughs> for many years, you know, I remember telling someone when I was in my, uh, I had just turned 30, and I said, you know, I'm really living about three years ahead of this time and i it was so difficult for me uh i i found out just to even uh live in in that moment or that year you know uh, let alone that moment and uh but over time with practice you learn to just let all of that go because it's so fictionalized. It doesn't even exist. You know, it's the stress that we put on ourselves to perform. And yet there's no performance, you know, in the present moment, in this now, it just is. Mm-hmm. And if people can get there, if, if two or more people can get there, if one person can get there, that's great. But in the act of, of conversation, and I'm always reminded of what Adler said about the difference between uh, communication and conversation. And people can communicate, but not everybody can have a conversation mm. because it requires that sense of, of mindfulness and just letting go mm-hmm. in order to be able to uh, hear and to be able to speak and listening is the real key conversation is a, it takes a hundred percent of of my uh mindful activity and a hundred percent of someone else's it's not a 50 50 it's a hundred percent and a hundred percent to have a genuine conversation <laughs> so true i you know i haven't i haven't heard it uh, quite put in that way, but it, as I, I think about that, I, it really does. Like if if I'm not really bringing my whole self forward in in my conversations with people, there's a lot that I'm holding back or things, and and that's information for me. You know, like what is it about the situation? Am I feeling vulnerable? Am I? Is there something going on internally that I don't feel like I can share with this person? And right. yeah, I think about being in certain spaces where I've had the permission to kind of open up in this way. And one of those places is Esalen, which we've, we've talked about. And yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, one of my teachers there, Perry Holloman, um, he he's trained in Gestalt and, and I know that's something you've also trained in and, you know, he, he really like creates this container in which we as, as students go into self-inquiry and kind of 
share what's following following whatever really is is present for us and and sharing from that space and you know i sometimes find myself um having a challenge in places where maybe i feel overstimulated or just not as as safe or just in in myself or grounded to kind of open up in this way and I kind of, for whatever reason, have in my mind like places like Esalen where I can be that way. And right. one thing that that I've ha- had happen with with my partner Finn is he's he's really just he's like, well, why can't we create that here in our home? You know, it doesn't have to just be uh, specifically at that place. We can create these spaces where wherever we are mm-hmm. with people. So it's something that I've, I've really been um, yeah, trying to practice myself. And I'm curious, you, you know, you, you've had various trainings, you've, you've traveled a lot and what have, what have been some of the things that have really impacted your uh, ability to practice mindfulness and presence with others and yeah, really just be, I think um, at a, probably around 18 or 19, I took my first Gestalt class that was in 1977, and that was in a uh, small college. And uh, um, West Coast Gestalt was going on then uh, in, in a pretty good fashion at Esalen. Uh, mainly at Esalen, although there were practitioners uh, in San Francisco, and San Francisco had its Institute of, of uh, Gestalt Therapy, uh, the old uh, San Francisco Institute. Um, and there's another one there now. I think Morgan Goodlander is is with that one. It's an excellent program as well. Um, but the forerunner of the of the current San Francisco Institute uh, really exerted a lot of influence. And there were a lot of writings, uh, but primarily things were being done at Esalen uh, in the 60s and in the 70s. And then there's sort of this, there was sort of this theoretical split between the East Coast and West Coast as far as consult therapy was concerned. And uh, Laura Pearls, uh, Fritz's wife, Fritz Pearls, one of the co-founders of consult therapy, and Laura Pearls, um, went up to New York and established the help with the uh, New York Institute. And that's where one of my early teachers, Ann Teachworth, uh, was from. And Ann also had a program in New York, and she co-taught with Laura. And I met Ann many years later and uh, just really hit it off. Uh, but my orientation was more of the West Coast style and hers was uh, uh, more of the, uh, I would say it had a flavor of the East Coast that I hadn't contacted before, come in contact with. And uh, because contact is a real uh, principle in Gestalt, the idea of, of contact and making contact. And um, so the idea of then learning to do something which I had never learned to do 
In fact, for many years, I made, I, and I would, I would think to myself, I'm making money being able to use my mind, you know, to formulate, to express, to write. Um, and I had written a lot and taught a lot on the undergraduate and graduate level. And um, I thought, well, it's, it's all about the mind, you know. And someone asks, well, you know, would you introduce yourself? You know, what comes out of my pocket is a business card and immediately, uh, you know, we start talking about education or profession or whatever, you know, it might be too. And one of the things that I learned was that you're none of those things. In fact, you're not your mind at all. And so the key is, instead of getting uh, trapped in all of that thinking and in all of those thoughts, which especially today in our society, because we are living so in such compacted pressure today, um, that so many people are just, um, you have this expression in psychology, the double bind. And it's where uh, you're in it if you do, you're in it if you don't, you're just in it. And if you try to move either way, you just are stuck. So many people feel that way today. And the reason is, is because they've given over to the concept, and this is a concept, it's not reality. But it's this mental construct or concept that I am my thoughts, I am my thinking. Um, whatever I think about myself, that's what I am. What other people think about me, that's what I am. What I think about other people, that's what they are. Mm -hmm. You see this type of polarization, especially today, uh, the big theater, the theatrical production is politics. You see this, I mean, it's all of this projection. The idea is that I can observe or witness my thoughts, but I am not my thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's the real bottom line key. It's a key to meditation. It's a key to yoga, especially hatha yoga. And I remember taking my first hatha yoga class in 1977 too. I graduated high school in 77 and immediately moved into the dorm, you know, and was just surrounded by all of these wonderful experiences that I had no clue about, you know. So I'm taking Gestalt and I'm taking Hatha Yoga. Well, being brought up in a fundamentalist Christian family, I just thought, well, you know, this is probably good for me. And it's, you know, it was great exercise as far as stretching and becoming limber, you know, at all, I thought. But the real key is to help people get in touch with something that most, especially most people in the West are divided from, and that's their own body. Mm -hmm. um, because that's where most people live, the mind, the, the kasha, the body. And so... What Hatha Yoga and Patanjali is, is really good in the sutras about this. But most, uh, back in 77, I, don't, I didn't even come in contact with the Yoga Sutras uh, when, when I was taking Hatha Yoga. Um, that, that came later. But the idea is that you're not your body, you know, and you're not your mind. This is what... Hatha yoga 
really strives to provide for the student not greater physicality but rather a realization that i'm not the body and i'm not the mind when we begin to make that separation and i remember that was incredibly difficult for me because again being brought up without that awareness at all i thought everything was mind mm -hmm. and body you know and you have this body mind construct in the west where that's what you are you know and if you're born a certain way that's what you are you know or if you think a certain way then that's that's what you are really mm -hmm. no mm -hmm. so being able to sort of peel back the layers which is another gestalt concept peel peeling the onion you might say uh you learn to observe or witness your thoughts but you also at the same time understand i'm not those thoughts at all and when we start making that kind of mindful purposeful separation that's where the magic that's where the change really comes and that's what gestalt helped me with and that's what hatha yoga helped me with but it came later mm -hmm. because i was so muddled and confused as an 18 and 19 year old when i was introduced to this that it just didn't at first i mean it just made no sense at all you know except for some psychological principles or some uh you know exercise type principles but getting in touch with my body well i'm i'm seeing it here it is you know i'm in touch with it no or understanding that i'm not my thoughts that that was just as foreign to me um you know rene descartes cogito ergo sum he wrote in latin which means i think therefore i am hmm. so you reverse that and our sense in the West, our sense of I amness is based on our ability to cogitate or to think. Mm -hmm. That's all wrong. That's not correct at all. The, you reverse that and you get the Eastern reality of it, which is I am, therefore I can think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And so the, the real understanding is, I am that. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I am connected to everyone and everything. Mm. Um, I am not my body, I am not my mind. Uh, Sri Nisgadarta uh, used to say, I am neither uh conceivable or perceivable people would say well what are you i'm not i'm neither perceivable nor conceivable in other words i'm beyond the mind i'm beyond identification with the mind or the body um and so rene descartes pins cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am and so people's sense of self really became acquainted in the west with their ability to think now it, it did a wonderful amount of good you know for western civilization as far as science and mathematics and things like this but many other things had been done several thousand years before uh, in the sciences and in mathematics in uh, india for instance and also saudi arabia 
And we find now, especially in the area of theoretical physics, that we're actually proving what uh, these writings in the Vedas and the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahaparata, we're proving that, wow, this is actual reality. This is not science fiction. This is not uh, some sort of tribal superstition mm-hmm. that we achieve superior, superiority over in the West. No, what we're finding out, physics and science is now teaching us, I'm not my body, and I'm not my mind. And so, uh, it's been kind of slow in coming in America, but now you see more uh, psychological modalities really giving in to the reality of this Western type of thinking. Mm-hmm. And, it's going, and it's reorientating our entire uh, perceptions of mental health, uh, of who we are as human beings, and of what we are, mm-hmm. you know, which is revolutionary. And I, I can say this, I'm so excited to be alive during this time. I mean, at 62 years old. But, you know, as Alan Watts was very fond of saying, if you want to know what's going on today, you have to jump in today with both feet. Hmm. You, can't, you cannot stay in your easy chair and just watch Fox News for the rest of your life. You know, when you're an older American and, you know, just mumble and grumble about the way things are falling apart because really things are not falling apart in the sense that some people might think they're falling apart. Mm -hmm. Um, In many ways, what I'm seeing is that things are falling back into place in in a good and healthy way. But we're in the beginning of this period of time that's a real transformation. And it's going to take a while before it really impacts society. What we're seeing now are sort of a stage of infancy in this in this big transformation, hmm. uh, or as Carl Jung uh, would style it, the age of Aquarius. We're just in the in the baby stages of this. But there's a you know to think about what may come in the future, which is a concept because there's really no future. There's only right now. Hmm. But if we were to think in terms of the future and to be aware and observe, I'm I'm doing this. I don't know if this is but if, if I allow myself the opportunity to think that way, mm-hmm. um, the world that can be created and that can be uh, constructed is a really beautiful place. Hmm. That's a really um, that there's a a simplicity to what you're saying and then there's also as my mind tries to make sense of it all it's just like so much i want to ask <laughs> i know it's it's mind-blowing really the simplicity is the real key mm-hmm. and i'm not talking about giving lip service to simple-minded ideas these you know the idea that i'm not my body and not my mind it's not simple-minded at all in fact it's no mind Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) and uh but it's the real key and once a person any of us starts to live that way and i I speak from my own experience this is just my own experience Mm -hmm. but when i really started living this way i'd look around me think you know think about the past 
think about the future. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was younger, and I mentioned earlier, you know, that I, I told uh, a colleague of mine, he was a professor, and I said, you know, and I had just moved to Austin. This was in back to Austin in 1993 to teach. And I, I said, you know, I, I've been here a year and I don't even feel like I'm here. I was so not grounded hmm. because I had this, these concepts and ideas about uh, where I was going, where the school was going, where students were going, all of these things. Um, that it was just so difficult to, to be grounded. That's a pretty common experience when you're young. And what it led me into was a great deal of anxiety hmm. and stress because you don't know. Well, of course you don't. If you allow yourself to believe that your mind is projecting uh, into the future, which is when you really understand this, I mean, there's no future at all. There's just right now. There's just this moment, mm-hmm. this moment that you and I are sharing. This is all the reality that there is. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I, as I got older and um, I look back and there are things that, you know, I wish I would have said differently, done differently. Um, this can lead people who are older into a very common stage, which is the stage of depression. Mm. Now, understanding these two things, the way that we use our mind. When I was younger, I experienced living future pace, always in the future, never in the present moment, so much so that I didn't even feel like I was living um, in Austin when I had a house and uh family and so forth. I mean, I was there, but I just couldn't feel grounded mm-hmm. because I, the mind process I was misusing to such an extent that I had this, I created my own anxiety. I was creating my own stress. And so anxiety and stress is a product of thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. Depression is always the product of thinking about the past. Now, I'm talking about someone with, a, a, as we you know, would say in Gestalt, a good ego structure. Mm-hmm. You know? um, but typically, that's our problem. The problem is not stress itself or anxiety itself. The problem is not depression itself, typically. The problem is how we're using the mind, because if you stay in the present moment and we just take a breath and I'm looking at you mm-hmm. and you're looking at me, this is all there is right here. Yeah. Um, is my wife in the other room? I don't know. Um, maybe. My perception, however, is just this, just this moment. Um, What's going on outside? I really don't know. The only thing I know is what's going on right now. And so the more that we learn to live in the present moment, in the here and now, the less anxiety that we'll have, the less depression that we'll have. Why? Because I'm not allowing the mind Mm -hmm. 
to run off into concepts into the future which don't exist, nor allow it to go back into the past and dredge up those, uh, those and we, we do this to ourselves, these wretched memories that we create for ourselves, which uh, good psychological research uh, really summarizes those things probably didn't happen at all the way that we remember them happening. Mm. You know? But the fact is, the past doesn't exist either. The only thing that exists is what's happening right here, right, right now. now. Mm-hmm. And the more that we can stay in the present moment, the less anxiety, the less depression. Why? Because the mind is in this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally, I, I know there's a part of me that, that definitely can, can resonate with that and, and feels that. And then there's also this other part that's coming up as I, I hear you share this and, and, and it's like, well, yes. And there's the reality of what, what, there with life there's things that are coming up that i know are are coming up uh like having to support myself having to continue to work having to navigate um various projects um there's there's a lot that i i know that i as i stay present in the moment i still think about what's what's coming up for me in the future. So sure. like, how do we yeah. kind of marry that in a way that we're not so in this moment that we're not even like thinking about what's, what's coming next, you know, I, cause it, it does feel a little abstract and, and I, I'd like to see if I could maybe kind of, yeah, bring it to something a little more concrete if that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And again, I think that I'm talking from my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. I had, throughout my life, I've had several what I would call uh, awakening experiences. And the big one came in 2003. I had been practicing um, a process called Gyan Yoga. Um, And one of my teachers, uh, in this process was Stephen Walensky. And Stephen had studied with Nisigadarta. And um, so I, I was watching Stephen on a DVD. And I just had this complete break, this complete separation. And it, I got it. And, and uh, I remember going back <clears throat> and sitting on my sofa I didn't know if I should go to work the next day. You know, what, what exactly do I do? Do I just sort of move through life in the present moment, you know, not, not worrying about a house payment or mortgage or children or whatever, you know, what, what is this? Well, that's pretty typical after an awakening experience. And so I went, there was a uh, wonderful minister in Austin uh, who was a minister of a non-dual uh, Eastern-oriented church, and I went and talked to him, and he said, well, you're in a liminal state. Hmm. It's a liminal state. Okay, so I have to find out what that is. And it is. That's exactly right. You're right. It's an, it, this in-between state. It's a transition. 
And uh, so he said, you just be very gentle with yourself. Don't make any major decisions. He said, just let this, let this process work. But he said, that's good. You're on the right. You're doing it. Just let it, let it work. And so I, I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. Um, because most of my colleagues were, uh, in a fundamentalist group and the, there's no way that they're going to even begin to, to understand. So mm. I, I sat with this by myself for quite a while and was working through it. But the, but the issue is you're fine. You know, again, going back to the principal teachings of, of yoga, the issue is desire. Um, my father fought in World War II. I was brought up by a World War II veteran. He was a sergeant. He spent three years fighting in Europe. Um, I was brought up in probably one of the most idyllic times uh, in America. And my father was a chamber of commerce manager in the community where we lived. And so uh, we celebrated the 4th of July and everybody had a flag in the yard. Mm -hmm. he, he finished university. He graduated from Texas Tech um, College in 1949 with a degree in journalism. So he was, uh, he was wonderfully open-minded. And my mother was, my mother had spent a year in, at, uh, at college. And so my parents were educated and they, which really helped me growing up because I was just the weirdest kid. Uh, and I was the oldest. And I had a sister 13 months younger than myself, my sister, and uh, we're very close. And we have such a close family. But this issue of desire is so tied to the American concept of having a job. Mm -hmm. And I saw my father defining himself based upon his job. And the job was important, the job ethic, you know. And I certainly believe, you know, that you need to cooperate in whatever living arrangement, you know, you, you have to make a cooperation. But it gets down to this idea of desire. What do I want? Mm -hmm. Well, if you want bigger and better, uh, you know, then that, that may create some difficulties. Mm. Um, I'm reminded of, of the various quotes in the, um, in the Bible. Uh, when we pray uh, to God, as we were taught to do, uh, you ask God, bless us with what we need not what we want mm -hmm. there's a real distinction between the two because um i don't need a lot i don't need a lot of food i don't need a lot of uh things the basics yeah. the things but in america this is a vastly uh different concept because we live in such a hyper-materialistic um, society that has been produced by an economic system 
that says if you're really patriotic, buy more and buy American. Now, I'm not, I don't want to deal with any of those ideas as far as the the meetings go, but I'm just saying that's the way that we were brought up. Mm-hmm. And buy more, buy more, buy bigger, buy bigger. Uh, and so people began to be judged, especially after World War II, when America was so financially uh, and economically blessed, um, globally blessed, really. Um, people were then judging what neighborhood do you live in? Mm-hmm. What size house do you have? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your bank account like? What kind of cars do you drive? What do your children attend school? Things like this. Um, my grandfather was a lifelong cowboy on the Matador Ranch in outside of Matador, Texas, and he he was born in 1873. Um, he lived what I would say was pretty much the perfect life. He had what he needed and, and really not a lot more. And he was happy. He, he passed away at 93 and was happy until the day that he, he you know, he transcended. Mm-hmm. But it's this idea of desire. Um, stress, anxiety are many times coupled with this concept, this mental concept of desire, which is tied into one's definition of of self and success and meaning. And if we live that way, that's a materialistic lifestyle. The unfortunate thing is religious systems, even within our own country, have so incorporated that that it's almost indistinguishable uh, and we have what's called in the in the research the health and wealth gospel, and that is if you're really uh, if you really are a genuine Christian, you're going to be materially blessed. Hmm. This is a vastly different concept than what uh, Christians faced in the first three Christian centuries, and <laughs> it was just not that way at all, you know. And I'm using Christianity as an example. Yeah. No, I, one thing that, that came up as you were just sharing, it's like I, I get that we don't need as much as we think we need. And we really can get by with a, a lot less than what we consume. And, and even just, Thinking about like in India, the I think it's the is it is it the the Brahmins or is it another who basically give up all of their possessions to kind of be this um, they they they're just in service to others and yeah. The concept of, of seva or service, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, if you, for instance, my my meditation teacher was uh, Yogi Amrit Desai, mm-hmm. and he's a pioneer, and he's still teaching. Uh, he was a pioneer of bringing 
uh, traditional yoga to the West in the 1960s. And uh, Yogi Desai is still teaching uh, in Florida uh, and uh, doing a, a good work there. His teacher was a, a master yogi of a long lineage, and his name was Kripal Vananda. Kripal Vananda was a Swami. And there's a sense in which when you follow that particular path in India uh, as a Swami, then you take vows of renunciation. And basically, you have uh, just a, uh, a manner of dress and a water pot, and you just go from place to place. And uh, you find that people will give you food and, and sustenance and what, what you need, and you spend time and you teach village to village and so forth. And that tradition uh, still very much exists in India. Um, and there's a sense in which when you're coming to terms with I am not the mind, I am not the body, there's a sense in which you'll also be faced with this idea of renunciation. Hmm. Um, how much do I need? If I want to stay crazy, I'll, I'll stay on the treadmill. <laughs> but if I'm tired of, of, of working this treadmill yeah. and I really want some peace of mind, how much, how much of this stuff do I really need? How much do I even want? How much do I use? How much do I read? How much do I watch? How much do I see? Hmm. You know? It's really wonderful to have a television in every room. I mean, very convenient, mm -hmm. you know. But I mean, after a while, um, you know, one breaks, do I need to replace that? One goes out, do I need to replace this? Um, and you finally start coming to terms with this. But again, this is very difficult for some people in America because we're so surrounded by this materialistic consumptive mind frame where we just consume 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 mm -hmm. and buy 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 and gestalt has these wonderful uh phrases introject and retroject introjection is where you just sort of open your mouth and you're just spoon fed whatever the media tells you whatever anybody tells you you're you basically interject or take into yourself without discrimination mm. information and you come to believe it. Yeah. You know, retroflexion is when you've had enough and you get sick of it and it starts coming back up mm -hmm. and it starts coming back up. And, and, uh, if it's healthy, it will start coming back up in, in ways such as really looking around and starting to discriminate. Um, I don't desire this now. I, I need to maybe get rid of some things or I need to make some changes in my life um, because if I'm really as concerned about my own mental health and peace of mind as I tell everybody that I am, maybe I need to take responsibility for my own well-being. And that means maybe making some lifestyle changes that one or two years before, it would have been shocking for you to even consider making. Mm -hmm. But it really is about our attitude of uh, want 
versus need, which is desire. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a real key. But it's not a lot of fun to think about when you're young. because there's still so much to get and buy and have yeah Yeah. (laughs) well i mean we we all kind of like buy into it it's you know we see other people around traveling doing all these things they have all all the new devices and right well you know and you bring up a good a very good point there and you look at the, if you look at the political landscape, and without making reference to one uh, party or another, I mean, this, this phrase, for instance, just think about this. I'm just going to say this phrase and just, how does this resonate? Make America great again. What is it that you notice about that phrase? It's the last word. Again. Mm-hmm. Again is a past-paced term. So if I'm really going to discriminate and I look at that saying, make America great again, I want to know what kind of time frame are you talking about? Are you talking about make America great again like it was in the 1940s? You know, if you really look, it wasn't that, you know, we compared to today. What, when again are you talking about exactly? There's a real problem with that kind of thinking because Although it points forward, it's taking people to the past. Mm-hmm. You can't live in the past and live in the present moment. You've got to make a choice. <laughs> you can't live in the future and live in the present moment. You've got to make a choice. And that's when I used to hear that. I'd taken the Gestalt classes, I've been taking the yoga classes, and I would hear older people say that, and I would always think, ah, mm-hmm. that is so easy for you to say you're old. You're not young and vibrant and vital anymore, you know, and filled with, you know. Mm-hmm. But the key is to teach this to children when they're younger mm-hmm. so that they can be a lot more discriminating and maybe not have quite the uh, the traumatizing adolescence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because we're all, you know we all want to live in the the future or the past. Mm-hmm. The word suffering comes up as you talk about this, and how when I find myself kind of in that state of of suffering, oftentimes it's I'm I'm holding on to something that's in my past and I exactly I, I can't let go of exactly. that. And and when I have practices like yoga or meditation or mindfulness that that do bring me into the moment, that do create more of a connection between my mind and my body, it it changes my overall like well being and, and the way in which I'm thinking and all of it. And yes. In, in a way where I feel much better. Much, Absolutely. much better. Absolutely. Staying in the present moment has real therapeutic, uh, medically scientific therapeutic benefits for the body. Because being future-paced, being in this constant state of stress about uh, what may happen, you know, results in the release of 
chemicals and hormones in our body that aren't supposed to be released in those in those doses and it really does impact and affect the health the same thing is true about depression when you talk about serotonin uh you know re uptake inhibitors the sri mm-hmm. you're dealing with serotonin levels there and depression if you stay in that constant state you know now i'm talking about somebody with a good ego structure i'm not talking about somebody who who really does need the who may be chemically balanced i'm not yeah. talking about that person at all but i'm talking about someone uh like you or i you know pretty good ego structure and uh yes there are times i'll i'll become anxious but i can also bring myself out of it uh just like you there are times when i can be depressed and when i do i think you're thinking something about the past what was it you know and they go wow you're living in fantasy land because <laughs> that doesn't exist mm-hmm. come back into the present moment mm-hmm. um I, re- I remember when i first started this process i wrote out a little piece of paper and i gave it to camille my wife and i told her i said when you see me <clears throat> that i look like i'm depressed or anxious could you just remind me of this and what i wrote out was joseph you need to move from the past or future into the present moment hmm. and she did that she would get she'd get and she'd go joseph and it finally got to the point where all you had to say is joseph and i knew what she was going to say <laughs> and it really just and i went yeah okay and i would bring myself into the present moment and those things are just gone mm-hmm because they don't exist mm-hmm. and, and a person with a with a you know a, a good ego structure can do that and that's part of this learning process but it takes time mm-hmm. for for people who maybe don't have as strong of a an ego structure and don't necessarily have chemical imbalances what are some of the ways that you would kind of point them what what directions would you point them into kind of help them in that process of maybe creating a, a stronger structure for themselves i think learning to be patient and loving and gentle with themselves is mm-hmm. really the first place to start um and we we live in a society now where there's this term narcissism the narcissistic personality uh trait uh i'm not sure what the dsm current dsm refers to it as but um i know there are several several varieties of it in there but the idea of narcissism is this idea of self-love which is based on the uh, the mythological character narcissist who saw his reflection in the pool and fell in love with it and so there's this but you have to you know have a a good sense of love kindness and concern for yourself when you do that you'll find yourself wanting to move into areas that really help you and so um one of the best places to start is with breathing just learning to breathe Mm -hmm. um 
And in fact, the, the older the rishis and the yogis in India, if you went to India today and wanted to study yoga, you're not going to, typically you wouldn't, although they have them there now, thanks to, thanks to America, but typically you would just find a yogi and he may have one or two students in his little shala and a yoga shala is a little house and that's where he teaches and lives. And uh, he would start teaching you about breath work and how to breathe. And basically, to learn to use the mind to pay attention. Here's another interesting concept in Ayurveda, for instance, the Indian system of, of uh, natural medicine and Ayurvedic therapies and Ayurvedic medicine. But in yoga and Ayurveda, uh, there are six senses, not five. Now, in the West, we know the five senses, gustatory, uh, taste, olfactory smell, uh, eyesight, um, audio, which is hearing. And we have the capacity as human beings, we have audio digital and audio analog. Hmm. And we practice those almost without knowing it. We can pay specific attention to what a person is saying. That's one form. But we can also listen to the radio, drive, and have a conversation. That's another form of our hearing capacity. So we have hearing. Um, and so we have uh, the kinesthetic. We have touch, uh, the tactile senses. But in Ayurveda and in India, uh, several thousand years ago, they added a sixth sense. Do you know what that was? It's the mind. <laughs> now think about that. In India, the mind is a sense, just like tasting, seeing. And uh, when I would teach a class on this, I would, I would go up to a person and go, okay, you've got to help me. Uh, you know, because we have people who have this runaway mind. What's called in, in yoga, you know, the common teaching is the monkey mind. You know, this chatter you just can't turn off. And people say, can you help me? I would have people come to me and say, can you help me? I just can't go to sleep at night. I can't stop thinking. This is sure. pretty, uh, again, you know, with a good ego structure, that's a pretty easy fix. It's not, you just reorientate a bit. But I used to go up to students and I'd start walking in place. And I would go, okay, you're meeting me on, on uh, uh, Third Street in Austin and I come up to you right now. So I'm saying, Hi. Can you help me? I, I can't stop walking. And the student would just look at me, you know, he's kind of like, what? <laughs> and I would go, I, I'm serious. I, I just can't turn it off. I can't stop walking. Can you help me? You know, this, and it's kind of a ridiculous illustration, but it does illustrate the point that there are things that we have control over. And most people in America don't realize you have, can have with some practice, Control over your mind, control over your thought process. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but the mind in Ayurveda is actually considered a sense experience, just like smelling or tasting uh, or the kinesthetic, the, the touchy feel. And it's, and it's no different to them. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's kind of unusual. Um, for people to think of it that way. But when we start really understanding the mind process, but the key to doing this is actually just paying attention to your breathing, watching the breath. 
What happens when you watch the breath? The mind, yep. it does. The mind subsumes and it will just sort of gradually, 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 uh, what we would say, relax. Mm-hmm. And in a few moments with practice, you can get to what is the achievable state in all of yoga, all of meditation. In fact, you don't have to. And I would, I would teach classes and people would say, why don't you charge? And I would go, because I don't charge you to breathe air. I said, this is your natural birthright. This is who you are. I'm not, you know, there's no charge for this. I'm just showing you what's there, you know. But they would say, well, I just, the state that I'm talking about is the no mind state. Where you, and it usually happens for just a second. But you catch yourself reflectively, mentally reflectively, you, are, you become aware that you're not thinking about anything. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the key. <laughs> and, and, and for Americans, what you want to do is go back into that. Get in a relaxed space. I studied with Ralph Metzner many years ago at the California Institute for Integral Studies. And Ralph was uh, Tim Leary's principal research associate. But Ralph would, uh, would conduct these, uh, these sessions. And you would get into the space where there is no mind. And what you want to do is get right back into it. And then learn to to prolong it, make it last a little longer, but it may last just a second at first, and that's okay. Just be patient with yourself, keep practicing. Don't put stress on yourself, but keep practicing, and you can elongate that to the point where at any time, at any place, Mm. even if you're on a subway in New York City, within an instant, Mm -hmm. you take a breath, boom, and you're in the no-mind state, and you can stay that way. That's the key to yoga. That's the key to meditation. That's the state that is the state that you want to be able to achieve, because in that no-mind state, that's the doorway to reality right there, to realizing who and what you really are. You're not the body, and you're not the mind. There are no thoughts. And in that space and state, there's also no body. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I could just listen to you teach and and share all day. (laughs) Well, it it comes from my own experience. But I mean, this stuff, you know, if, 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 if I would have heard all of this, you know, when I was younger, I would have gone, oh, this is fascinating. I've got to. I want all this right now, you know, but the, the thing is you have to practice it bit by bit, but you have to start. Uh, like G.K. Chesterton said, uh, doing this is like art. You have to draw a line somewhere. You have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so the breath work is really where I would begin. It, it was the place that really um, helped me to get to this no mind state. Yeah. The breath work is the key. You know, I, as, as you share, I, I think about the experiences uh, with, with being in, in a practice and 
just noticing what you're describing happening for myself and just reflecting on that. And it, it really is such a profound like practice for me to, to have in my life. And I, I'm doing this with people regularly. And I notice that I still go back into thinking about the future, thinking about the past. And I don't think it's to completely like maybe it's possible. I don't know for myself to completely let go of all of that. I think it would really depend on my environment where I'm at, um, who I'm surrounded by. But I do know that, that I've had that experience enough times to, to want to continue to cultivate that practice for myself. And it, it really has helped me tremendously in my life. And I, I think about when I really got into practicing yoga was when I had started sobriety and going through that mm-hmm. process. It, it was what helped me so much to get through my day. I would start out 7 a.m., one hour of yoga. And then yeah. the rest of the day, it just, it, it really just set up such, such a, um, in, in, in my body, in my mind, just this, way of being that I I felt like I could operate from that, that just enabled me to be more present with myself and and not get so I, because when I was using substances, like I, I was so anxious and, and so uncomfortable with being um, in the discomfort of my own emotions, my own feelings. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally uh, resonate with that. I, I relate to it as well. Um, and I will say that with this practice, you will get to the point, and it doesn't take, uh, you know, you don't have to wait till you're 62 to get there, but you'll get there very quickly. But then you'll find that you are the master of your own ship. Mm. And you can walk into any room with whoever is there in whatever environment it may be, and you'll be completely in control because you are already in control. So true. I mean, I've, I, I feel like I've had those experiences, even if they're brief, I've, I've had that experience. And to know that it's possible, just to remember, right. I, can, I can achieve that. Absolutely. And this is what I would tell uh, what I tell my students, this is, this is what living inside out is all about. Most people that we encounter in the mundane day-to-day world are living from the outside in. They're taking everything that they see externally as themselves or their wants or desires. Um, there was a, a great sociologist named Emil Durkheim. And Durkheim came up with a theory many years ago called the theory of of deprivation. And he used this in early studies on uh, what was called then juvenile delinquency. Um, And he said the reason that young people steal is because they see other people have certain things like a television. So they want a television. And so they'll go and take it. Now, without getting into all of that, I'm just saying that the, the feeling of being deprived we see things on the outside that we think will give us some meaning some status some fulfillment and we take that whatever it is maybe whatever it may be 
that we see from the outside. It could be a person, you know. We do that as well. Uh, we look at a particular person. I want that person. You know, this person will complete me and make me all of that. But it could be, you know, a material object. Most people live from the outside in. But the key, and this is what we're talking about, and what you're experiencing, and what I'm experiencing is living, learning to live. Learning, this is, we're both Americans, so we can say this to, to other <laughs> Americans that are listening. We're Americans, it's, it's learning to live from the inside, knowing that you're not your mind, that you're not your body. Really beginning to practice that. Learning to be mindful, not having your mind full, but being aware, which is what Gestalt is. And Gestalt therapy was based on Kohler's old, uh, who was a wonderful German uh, researcher. Uh, his teachings, which led into the field of Gestalt psychology. Now, Gestalt psychology and Gestalt therapy are a little different. But what Gestalt psychology was based upon were experiments in perception how we perceive certain things. And this is what led me into phenomenology, the study of, of uh, real and abstract phenomena. Uh, what, what attracts us? Learning to live from the inside out, knowing who you really are, <laughs> not who you've been told you are, not who you've been societally programmed. Uh, and the entertainment industry is really big on this. You know, uh, not who we've been programmed to be, not who we've been taught to be, told to be, shamed to be, but who we really are. Hmm. And we find out that we're energy. I'm not my thinking. I'm not cogito ergo sinum. I think, therefore I am. It's the reverse. I am. And therefore I can think. Mm -hmm. which in India is a sixth sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, when we start understanding and conceptualizing ourselves a little differently, reorientating ourselves this way, our lives really do uh, open up and become as wonderful as we imagine that they can be. It really is. Mm -hmm. You're, you can be the master. You are the master of your own ship. Whether we take responsibility for that, uh, all of us are. Hmm. Anyway, regardless. And so it's just up to us to really understand how that process works. And it's not the way that we're programmed currently in our society. But changes are coming, and these changes are already there. And, uh, you know, one of the criticisms that my friends from India have about American yoga is it's so based on, uh, again, paying money. Uh, for these courses, and they're they're more like physical education. Fine, I I understand that, and yes, I think we have a lot to learn about what authentic yoga really is. However, it's still helping thousands of people mm -hmm. because I've talked to so many people who've been in yoga studios all over the United States, and they've had these awakening experiences because they got in contact with their own breath. That's the real key, and it doesn't matter. You know, if you're going to pay uh, $500 for, you know, for two months of courses, whatever, we'll pay nothing. It doesn't matter how you do it. Just make contact with your own breath mm -hmm. in a very 
mindful and aware way. And that's what I was getting back to earlier. That concept of awareness is a real gestalt principle. Um, and it's the principle in yoga. It's the principle in meditation. Mm-hmm. Just be aware. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's so much freedom. This is where liberty and freedom really do exist. Because when you know who you are, and when you know what you're not, then you can make these amazing choices that are not based upon living from the outside in, but they're based from living from the heart, and that's living from the inside out. And that's authentic living right there. Mm -hmm. And you've experienced that in your own life. I really have. I really have. And I think about how for so long... I externalized things and and in order even within my own like eroticism or, or desire, like I put it on a certain look, a certain body type, a certain whatever's kind of been put out there and conditioned in in my mind to believe and this practice that I've been coming into for the past couple of years of Tantra is really kind of looking inward for those things and, and not yes. <laughs> outward. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's a lot of undoing. <laughs> That's exactly right. And the word tantra itself has this idea loosely translated of something that is woven, you know, this fabric. And it is, this is, I think for many of us, the real suffering has been unlearning and this process of unlearning and this process of renouncing beliefs and lifestyles that we formerly had that we now see are not really authentic at all, but are just sort of the the theatrical props that people, some people still use in our society. And there's still a lot of theatrics in our society. is really is really an amazing an amazingly orchestrated entertainment experience the whole thing you know but learning to to understand uh the warp and the weave of this fabric as you've done in your own studies of of classical tantra really do help you to to come to this awareness you know that it's not at all what it appears to be it's a lot more wonderful and magical than you ever than you ever thought it would be could have imagined yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh well, i want to ask you one more question before we wrap things up um and i i'll look at your questions that you put out there and then see if there's one there or if something else comes to mind so bear with me for a yeah, moment yeah that's fine yeah, just whatever, whatever happens in the moment. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with this, this question that you had given me. Um, you and your wife, Camille, have had an amazing relationship. She's been a type 1 insulin-dependent diabetic since she was 7 years old. How has this affected your relationship over the years? Speaking for myself, and I, I can say that it's, it's only brought us closer together. 
Um, and that's not cliche. Uh, we've had an amazing relationship and we still have an amazing relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, three years ago, she had two heart attacks on the same day and she's mm-hmm. been disabled. Um, ever since and spends most of her days in bed, but that's just the way it is. Uh, We had just a number of wonderful years uh, together, active and so forth. She's the strongest woman I've ever known. Uh, And I will say that, and this is, She's helped me so much because she is so incredibly honest. And uh, when I meet someone who is just that honest, and this is this is something again that I that that drew me after I'd taken that first Gestalt class in seventy seven to more gestalt training is the sense of honesty and openness involved just being honest what honesty really is and i think for a lot of americans it's very difficult to be honest because we're taught through media and so forth. i mean it's just all and so many people are so confused now we don't know many people feel as though they don't know really what's going on there's something going on but where's you know so this when you find an honest person, stick with that person. <laughs> you know, whether it's a friend, whether it's a lover, whether it's a, a mate or whatever, stay with people who are honest, you know, because honesty builds trust, but it takes time. And so we've had a, an amazing relationship and she has taught me and I've, I've uh, uh, certainly stumbled along the way, but she's always been there for me and I've always been there for her. And uh, C.S. Lewis um, made a comment one time about suffering, and he said, uh, suffering was God's megaphone. Uh, And what he meant, what I understand him to mean about that is, and I'm not talking about creating my own suffering through thinking about the past or thinking about the future. I'm not talking about that kind of suffering. I'm talking about what I would call undifferentiated suffering, such as the suffering of another person Mm. that I love uh, through, in her case, a debilitating illness. C.S. Lewis's wife was named Joy. And he wrote that wonderful book, Surprised by Joy. And his wife had cancer and passed away. And uh, he had never suffered as much. And I, I understand what Lewis meant by that. But in that suffering has been tremendous love mm-hmm. and compassion. It's not always easy, you know. Life is not easy. It's not easy with other people. I mean, we don't even make it easy to live with ourselves, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so bringing somebody else into the mix, you know, you're just going, oh, my word, you know. But 
uh, she and I are blessed in, in just a number of ways. We live in this little house on five acres deep in the Sam Houston National Forest. And uh, we're surrounded by plants, and she loves plants. And so I have a, a, a little job that I go to, but the job doesn't define who I am. The job allows me to have and be blessed with uh, things that provide for her. And, um, but she gives me just as much back. I can't wait to get home. Uh, in fact, I don't go very many places. I, I'm home and we're home together. And this is where we are. And this is where we stay. Uh, and we have our wonderful family of feral cats outside. It's a growing family. <laughs> and so we feed them twice a day. And then we have our, our inside familiar cat rose. And, uh, but for me, it, it has helped. Our relationship has helped me in ways that I don't know that I could, I don't know that I have the words to really explain it all. But I would not be the person that I am now without having had the experience of knowing her and loving her and being with her for these many years. Mm. Um, and uh, I just feel very blessed uh, to be with her. And um, and it's and she is uh, she practices mindfulness. She's incredibly tough and uh, resilient. And uh, we stay in the present moment um, as much as you know, as much as we can. And so every day is a blessing for us. And that's the way she feels as well. Um, and this is, this is our life. It is what it is in this moment. Mm. Why is it this way? I haven't a clue. Uh, and if people really begin to go into these other areas, it just brings confusion. I don't know why. Um, but she's been a type one insulin dependent diabetic since she was seven and it just started getting worse. And she's, she's uh, now only 43. Um, but, uh, the diabetes has really begun, begun to, to ravage the body. And, uh, but she's not her body. Mm. Hmm. She's not her mind, and she has a very strong mind. Yeah. Uh, she would have been a great attorney. <laughs> 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 because she can wrap me up pretty quick. <laughs> but, 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 we, but we both know, you know, that, uh, that this flesh is not, it's not all there is. This is not who we are. Mm. And so that gives a great optimism. But living in the present moment for us has been the real key, learning to do that. Hmm. 
learning to do it. And it's it's always a learning process because you always have things that want to pull you into the future or into the past. Always you'll you know you're just you're doing just such great, and all of a sudden you get that phone call, and then your created memories start coming into play. And your memories, by the way, are created as well, you know, and, and rarely are they the way you think. That's why in a court of law, you know, an attorney can bring four witnesses and they all saw different things, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because the memory is not, uh, is not uh, completely reliable. Well, to that point of getting the four different memories of, of what happened, you're also getting different perspectives and, Absolutely. And I I think about the the process of um, just recalling things and even in my own experience of sharing it with with people, I feel like something new comes out sometimes in in what I'm saying, whether that's an awareness or it's my mind kind of shifting things around. Right. Exactly. Yeah, many times, and this is true in psychological research. I mean, the idea of of uh, false memory syndrome. Uh, there was there was a real issue that affected the criminal justice system uh, back in the uh, the nineteen eighties, um, and it resulted in this awareness. Uh, the American Psychological Association issued a, a report regarding false memory syndrome. Uh, and that is if you're led either by a, a therapist or an attorney into into remembering something and he, he or she is feeding you information in the process, that can result in a false memory that you believe just as much as if it really happened or not. And it turned out that many of these cases didn't happen at all, even though people said they remembered them happening. But they went back and, and looked at transcripts and found out that they were being led into basically creating the, the memory. And so we know the mind can do that as well. But you, you mentioned perspective, and that's right. Everybody has a different perspective. We all come at things from a different angle, whether a lifestyle angle, cultural angle, linguistic angle, mental angle. It, it doesn't matter. Everybody has a different perspective. And I want to say thank you for sharing so much of your experience and knowledge and wisdom. And, and I was just really touched by sharing about your relationship with Camille as well. And I I know I haven't had the opportunity to, to meet her, but I, I hope um, that happens at some point. Absolutely. You're always welcome. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I appreciate uh, I appreciate the invitation to be on. And uh, um, again, I don't I don't project myself as some authority. These are just things that uh, that I've experienced in my life that have helped me, and I hope uh, can help other people as well. Thank you so much. Absolutely, and uh, thank you as well. And you have a wonderful day. Yeah, you too. Thank you all so much for listening today. 
If any of you'd like to find out more about the work that I do, you can go to samsebastian.com. That's S-A-M-S-E-B-A-S-T-I-A-N.com. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, please reach out to me via email. That's sam at samsebastian.com. Much love.